Okay, we'd like to welcome you to our current event and weekly Bible study for April 6th, 2008. And today's study is going to be somewhat of a continuation of last week's study. Uh, we could entitle it, J.R. Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, and the Occult. We're going to get into some different issues this week. We're going to be talking about also the Inklings, which is the group that they were a part of together. Um, and uh, the first thing I'm going to be quoting from is a article that David Meyer from Last Trumpet Ministries put out. And it's basically entitled J David Meyer on J.R. Tolkien. Now David Meyer has a unique perspective because he was heavily involved in the occult for a number of years. Came out of it, born again, saved Christian pastor now. And he has some material that not a lot of people have because his perspective is so different than most pastors are able to present. So, quoting from this article, which, I'm not 100% sure how old this article is, but it's, it's not very old. He says, something very strange is going on in the United States. And the spirits that are hard at work are now bringing forth a power that is designed to captivate the entire world. Shortly after the Twin Towers and the World Trade Center in New York City fell to the ground and drastically changed the nation forever, a new series of movies began to draw millions of people to movie theaters. Standing above and apart from the many fantasy movies and books is a trilogy, or a series of three, called The Lord of the Rings. This series was written by the late J.R., actually it's J.R.R. Tolkien, and was first published in book form in the early 1950s. During the rock music revelation of the revolution of the 1960s, the Lord of the Rings trilogy caught on, and over 100 million of these books were sold. These books greatly fueled the spiritual revolution and opened the door for witchcraft to seize upon the world. All of this is being done in order to pre prepare the way for a new world order in a new Aquarian age. Now, what the occultists say is that we're leaving the age or era of Pisces, which is more the era of Jesus. Remember, he was a fisher of men, and Pisces is a fish. Into now the Aquarian Age, which there's, you know, that song that they used to play, this is the dawning of the age of Aquarius. Well, that's actually true in occult vernacular. And in this Aquarian Age, we're going to have, essentially, the emergence of, you know, the Antichrist, and the New World Order, and this, this new way of, of uh, New Age, New World Order living. Meyer goes on to say, I was once a witch and was very much a part of the world that J.R. Tolkien reveals in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. In the 1960s, I practiced astrology, palmistry, numerology, among other devices of the craft. So, palmistry, where they read the palms, and numerology, where they're using um, particular types of numbers in, order to, in, in, a, in a divination kind of way, in order to predict future events, or things that are going to happen, or even possibly things that have happened. Astrology, using the stars to do that. All these practices are forbidden in the Bible. Um, I believe I've got a, two or three uh, sermons where it, it's entitled Occult Practices, uh, Witchcraft Biblically Defined. You could do a keyword search for that um, on the sermon audio, and where I go into these individual things a lot further. He says, I was graciously and mercifully saved out of witchcraft by the Lord Jesus Christ. I am now spending my life in a mission of exposing occultism and its forces of darkness. Well, and that's, that's a wonderful ministry because there's not a lot of people that are doing that right now. Um, this are, these are subjects that 
many pastors tend to stay away from. A lot of people, it just flat out scares them. I, I know this because I've heard this expressed from people and Christians before. But as a Christian, you know, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. I can do all things through Christ which strengthen me. We're supposed to uh, reprove the unfruitful works of darkness and expose them. And this is darkness, and light always exposes darkness. And we're called to be salt and light as Christians. So these are not things that I believe we should shy away from. And because the church has shied away from them, is a big reason that the church is in the shape that it's in. And the world is in the shape that it's in, because we haven't been salt and light. For the most part, the church is set back, has this prosperity, love gospel of this one-sided God that is just a God of love and he's the big guy in the sky and he'll give you whatever you want. Just, you know, send your donation in and I'll send you your, you know, whatever. And it's all about the money. And the love of money is the root of all evil. So we've got a lot of lukewarm Christians or, or pseudo-Christians that are um, warming the pews of America and elsewhere as well. But America, I believe, would be probably the worst example and it's no wonder the world is in the shape that it's in, because we're not being salt and light. So if we go further, and I'm not talking about everybody listening to this broadcast either, because these people, the people that tend to listen to these teachings tend to be, you know, obviously at, at a much higher level than the average Christian. So if we go further, he says, I am thus writing this message with a great urgency, for I can spot witchcraft in a moment. See, he, ha he has a very unique perspective to be able to spot witchcraft because he, he was involved in it before. There's that Bible verse that talks about, um, lest Satan get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Okay, And this is the big thing that happens to a lot of people. They get taken advantage of by Satan because they're absolutely totally ignorant of his devices. And the Bible talks about in Hosea 4.6 where we're destroyed for lack of knowledge. So we have to be very, very careful about that. And the biggest admonition Jesus gave um, regarding particularly the end times is to be not deceived. Because deception is going to be at every turn. So he says, I can see that the deceptive cloud of witchcraft has descended upon our nat nation. Now I've said this before and I'll say it again. I believe the coming one world religion, the essence of the coming one world religion, is going to be witchcraft. The, and particularly in the, in the New Age genre of witchcraft. The Bible says in Daniel that when the Antichrist arises, he is going to cause craft to prosper in his hand. And when they say the word craft, it's not arts and crafts. We're talking witchcraft. That's what the word means in that particular sense. There's many books entitled, uh, if you go to even... Um, New Age or called bookstores, and there, there's books entitled The Craft. Okay, and, and when they say that, witches know what that means. So witchcraft is the coming one world religion, essentially. An amalgamation of, of all religions in the world, but the essence of it being witchcraft. Even many Christians are being pulled into the forbidden realm of the occult. Because they are so ignorant of Satan's devices. And again, he reiterates what I just said there. So they're being pulled into this, and because they're being pulled into this, if they did have a ministry, ask yourself this question. Do you think that if you're, if you're innocently and unknowingly pulled into witchcraft, not knowing it, Satan's devices, do you think that might affect your ministry? Do you think where the Bible talks about where it says a little leaven, leaveneth the whole lump? Obviously that's going to affect you. 
in a spiritual way. Not only is it going to affect you, but it's going to affect the people you're trying to minister to. This is Satan's goal, to leaven and corrupt everything that's godly and good, and to get us ignorant of his devices, so that we're ineffective for the Lord Jesus Christ. If Satan knows he can't get you to hell, he wants to at least make you totally ineffective, so that you can do nothing for the Lord. Going further, before I re reveal the dangers of the Lord of the Rings trilogy and expose it as real witchcraft, I will reveal some things regarding beliefs and doctrines of witchcraft. Now, remember, the Lord of the Rings um, is, is the one Tolkien wrote. We're going to be talking about C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, who are essentially best buddies. But we're going to be kind of going back and forth here. First of all, he wants to tell us that witches and Satanists are not the same thing. Witches do not believe in Satan. And now, I'm not going to be that dogmatic and say witch. It depends what kind of witch you are, I think. Where, if you're into what they would call white witchcraft, would be a big difference between black. He's not really making that distinction here. But I understand his, his point. I just kind of wanted to reiterate or, or clarify that a little bit more. Uh, he says, witches do not believe in Satan. The first thing a neophyte or a beginner witch is taught is that there is a, quote, force. The force has two sides and can be controlled by magic spells, words, potions, incantations, rope magic. I've never heard of that, rope magic, but um, rings, amulets, and so on. Witches believe that there is also good witchcraft and bad witchcraft. And the good always triumphs over the evil. Witches also teach that battles are fought in the Middle Earth. Now we're going to be talking a lot about this term, the Middle Earth, today. Because it relates very, very much to these movies and these trilogies and how C.S. Lewis and Tolkien wrote. They believe that these battles are fought in the Middle Earth and in the astral plane causing upheavals both above and below. Thus witches emphasize that good must triumph over evil. But it's all witchcraft. Now all witchcraft is forbidden in the Bible. The, the penalty for witchcraft... Um, in the Bible, before was death. That, you know, thou, thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. And, now, again, I'm not telling you to go out and kill witches. Okay, but in the Old Testament, the penalty was death. There wasn't any, um, no bones about it type of thing. Um, obviously, we're in a different time right now, as far as the New Testament uh, dispensation goes, but, nevertheless, it's a very egregious thing in the sight of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Okay, so the quintessential essence of rebellion towards God is witchcraft. So it's a very serious thing in God's, God's eyes. Because there's probably not a whole lot more you could do to defile your own soul than to participate in witchcraft. So, this is something that, that also kind of needed to be clarified. And, and what they'll do is the people that are involved in Wicca, which they call white witchcraft. The word Wicca means bent or twisted. And they say, oh, we're good witches. We, they're typically the ones you'll see walking around and if they have a pentagram on, it's, it's the pentagram with the star pointing up, the, the top word point pointing up. And they would say, yes, we do good spells and we, we do love incantations and, and we try to, you know, whatever, bring peace and happiness and we go and we hug trees and, and we worship nature and Mother Gaia and all this other stuff. And then the problem is, is that that's the carrot. Now, Bill Schneblins wrote a whole book on this, Satan's Little White Lie, called Wicca. And if you do a keyword search, you can find that on the internet. 
It's Bill Schneblin. Uh, Satan's Little White Lie, Wicca. So if you do those keywords, I think Chick has it. Chick Publications. And um, he's got a whole book he's written on that. But what happens is, is the carrot is the white witchcraft, which seems all good and wonderful, but it's like anything else. If Satan puts a carrot out there, he's going to keep putting out more carrots in front of you. And the carrots, if you, if um, there's going to come some point where you're participating in Wicca, where it's not enough. And then you get into what they call either gray or black. Let's say somebody does something to make you mad. Well, I've got to get even with that person. Now you're crossing over into the realm more of black witchcraft or gray, where you're actually doing um, curses and things like this. Hexes incantations in order to get your way or in order to get revenge on another person. You cross over into the realm of gray into black and now you're in a whole different ball game where Satan's got a whole different set of carrots he's putting out in front of you in order to get you to go further and further and further into this stuff. So, Satan's very good at what he's done. He's had thousands of years to perfect his craft and don't underestimate him. Because he's as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So if we go further, it says, I am always amazed when I hear ministries such as Chuck Colson focus on the family and assemblies of God defend works such as Harry Potter. The Lord of the Rings and the Narnia Chronicles. Now, the Lord of the Rings, again, is, is Tolkien. The Narnia is C.S. Lewis. Okay? And I believe this weekend we've had a new Narnia come out. Some new, I haven't had a chance to even research it yet, but a new Narnia Chronicles. And again, this is the legacy of C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, who were good buddies. And we're going to be talking about them in depth today, seeing what kind of people they really were, who, what kind of friends that they, they hung out with. Because, because a lot can be said by the friends and the company that you end up keeping. And if you're a true born-again Christian, you're not going to be comfortable hanging around a lot of unsaved people, particularly ones that are absolutely either flat-out, Satanists, Luciferians, or heavily involved with the occult. You're not going to be comfortable spending quality time with them if the Holy Spirit lives inside you. So we're going to see if Tolkien and C.S. Lewis had a problem with any of this today. But more on that later. So he says, I'm amazed because they say the same things. Well, let me just read that. Um over again. He says, I'm amazed to hear the ministries of Chuck Colson focus on the family and the assemblies of God defend such works as Harry Potter. The Lord of the Rings and the Narnia Chronicles, I am amazed because they say the same things that initiated coven witches are saying. Which is that good triumphs over evil. It's all, it is all witchcraft. And the good thing that these professing Christians are defending is witchcraft. And that is forbidden in Deuteronomy 18, 9-14. As a former witch, I was horrified and outraged to find that Focus on the Family was promoting a book as announced in December of 2001 issue of their magazine. Now, I believe Focus on the Family has come back since then to a certain extent and backpedaled off promoting Harry Potter. Okay? But there was a time when that was, when that was happening. Uh, he goes on to say the book being promoted is titled as Finding God in the Lord of the Rings. The asking price was $13. Now, remember, this is from Focus on the Family. James Dobson, 501c3 corporate entity that's calling itself this Christian ministry. 
and they're promoting this book titled Finding God and the Lord of the Rings. And the asking price was $13. 13 being the number of rebellion, and 13 is also the number of a coven, a witch coven in the occult. Thus, these so-called Christian ministries are making witches their evangelists and using witchcraft materials in their Sunday schools. So, let's say this. If I go up here and in one week promote um, the Chronicles of Narnia or the Lord of the Rings, I'm basically saying, yes, as a Christian teacher, I am pointing you to this movie from Hollywood to teach you about scriptural, spiritual principles of the Bible. I'm basically relinquishing my role as teacher, and I'm turning it over to this Hollywood movie to say, yes, this is a good Christian movie, and there's a lot of Christian things that you can glean and learn from it. Now, you be, I mean, you're at a very high accountable position, obviously, if you're a Christian minister or a teacher. And then when you start advocating wicked things to teach other people, you're basically um, essentially using them as ministries. And you're using them as, as, as evangelistic tools, these types of things. Which I don't think the Lord would be very happy with that. And then it, he goes on to say that... Um, these so-called Christian ministries are making witches their evangelists and using witchcraft materials in their Sunday schools. They're actually bringing this into their Sunday schools and using this stuff. Soon, because why? Because they've got to use the world in order to draw people in. That's what they're trying to do. They, they, they know that deep down... How, how am I trying to say this? Uh... These ministries know deep down they're out of the will of God. Okay? Whether they want to admit it or not. Because the spirit of truth does not rest in them, they have to go outside to the world to bring in all these worldly things in order to bring the worldly people in and, and get them converted so that they can be twice the children of hell that they are. Essentially, that's what they're trying to do. That's why we have these big, gigantic ministries that particularly exist in America. You got, you know, Joel's, Joel Osteen, sorry, and his Lakewood Church, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of people, and these ministries online on TBN where, you know, you have all these thousands and essentially millions of people tuning in, and so much of what they're preaching is leavened doctrine, it's feel-good, they're not getting the whole counsel of the whole truth of God, and, and as a result of them using worldly methods, whether it's Christian rock whether it's um, promoting things like worldly movies and things like this, they're bringing it in the masses. And that's how they're doing it. But it's not through the, through the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. He goes on to say, Soon they, meaning these ministries, will find their children are in the craft and are good little Christian witches. The Lord of the Rings trilogy was the work of John Ronald Rule Tolkien. That's what J.R.R. stands for John Ronald Rule Tolkien. The guy's got four names. I mean, that's, wow, I heard of a middle name, but a middle, middle name? Anyway, this man did his writing during the midnight hours. He worked for 12 years and released the story of the Lord of the Rings in the 13th year. You think this guy wasn't involved in the occult? He did his work during the midnight hours, and he waited, he worked on this Lord of the Rings for, for 13 years and did not release it till the 13th year? Man. Tolkien became known as the master of the Middle Earth. 
and was a land where a, a land that was inhabited by hobbits, elves, mortal men, wizards, dwarves, orcs, or what are also grotesque goblins. The hero of the story is a hobbit or a halfling. These are these are like hybrid demonic-like creatures, okay, as best I can describe it. The hero of the story is a hobbit, or a halfling, only three and a half feet tall, named Frodo. Frodo Baggins. Frodo has pointed ears, furry feet, and carries a cursed object with him. The cursed object is a golden ring, invested with terrible powers that must be destroyed by casting it into a fiery abyss at a great distance. If Frodo would fail, the ring would fall into the hands of the evil wizard Sauron. Sauron and the entire world would pass into eternal darkness under the Dark Lord. So notice also here that always these movies, these types of fantasy occult movies, tend to portray the fate of all humanity in the hands of some evil person or evil creature. You know what? The Lord Jesus Christ is my hope and my Savior. And I don't need Frodo or anyone else to save humanity or to save the world or whatever they have with these superheroes that they got on TV like Superman and Spider-Man and all these other ones. Supposedly here, or now they've got these, these shows on TV called, like one's called, I think, Heroes, where these vile, unsaved people are here to save humanity. Or now we also have, and I've reported this in times past and, and uh, talked a lot about this, about supposedly, you know, the gray aliens and these ascended masters that are coming soon, Lord Maitreya, that are coming soon to save humanity through their occult powers. That is the message that is being heavily conveyed on a lot of different levels to us. And guess what? That's exactly what it's going to seem like when it starts to go down. Because it's part of the strong delusion that 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 clearly predicts what is going to happen, and is clearly predicted that God is going to be the one that sends it. It's not like God up there being powerless on the throne saying, Oh, I wish I could prevent it, guys, but I can't. He's actually sending it. Because he's separating the sheep from the goats. Everything that can be shaken will be shaken. It's just the way it is. So if we go further, let's see here. Okay, so if Frodo would fail, in other words, to fail the, to, to throw the golden ring into the fiery abyss, if Frodo would fail, the ring would fall into the hands of the evil, evil wizard Sarion, and the entire world would pass into eternal darkness. Sarion's world is a land of shadows called Modor. The ring has an inscription on it, which is written in a message in the witchcraft language of runes. Now, runes are... Um, Adolf Hitler was heavily into what they call these runes. And it has to do with, I believe, um, Nordic, uh, Icelandic mythology, the runes. You see a lot of about this in a lot of, um, uh, of shows on the occult in today's day and age. I'm not going to say anything more about it, but whenever you hear that word, it's, it's always involved with high-level occult, typically. He goes on to say, we must remember that these runes are actually real, and they are used in the occult. Now, runes, it's more like, a, it's more like an occult language, okay, that um, Hitler was obsessed with and, and was, was actually, to a large extent, able to actually decipher. Uh, J.R. Tolkien was born in South Africa, where his father, Arthur, managed to bank... When his father died, his mother Mabel returned with her children to 
Birmingham, England, where she was converted to Roman Catholicism. Jared Tolkien said, I desired, he said, quote, I desired dragons with a profound desire. Now, dragons of all mythological creatures are, without a doubt, the most purest representation of evil. Okay? Satan himself is described as a great dragon. So, this man desired dragons with a profound desire. He soon became a prodigy and was speaking German, French, Latin, and flawless classical Greek. In speech, he would sometimes break out in Gothic and in an ancient form of German. He would speak medieval Welsh and Anglo-Saxon. Tolkien even developed new languages. Now, this is not from God. This guy had an obsession with dragons and all of a sudden he turns into this child. This is very common. Very many child prodigies are these people that are supposedly gifted, particularly what the example that we have today are what they call star children, or crystal children, or dolphin children, or, or indigo children. Okay, These are supposed to these pro child prodigies, and almost every single time when we look into the backgrounds of these supposed child prodigies, it is their parents are heavily involved in the occult, or the new age, and almost always these people have psychic abilities, and they almost every single time believe in reincarnation and that they were, you know, whatever, Cleopatra in a former life or whatever, King Herod. And it, so whenever you see this happening, you always have to question yourself, okay, um, I'm not saying God can't gift a child, but is the child being gifted in such a way where he's glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ? Or is he being gifted in a way where ultimately he's being used as a tool of Satan in order to deceive people? Oh, but he's so wonderful. This child paints these beautiful pictures or he, or he composes this wonderful, beautiful music. I could care less. You know what it all boils down to? Is that child being used of the devil? Or is he being used of the Lord Jesus Christ? That's all that really matters. And we're going to be seeing more and more of this because they're predicting these indigo children or these star children are going to be the saviors of mankind. I can't tell you how many supposed saviors of mankind I've just been seeing. You know, between Barack Obama and uh, Oprah and all the New Age mumbo-jumbo, then we got Lord Maitreya and the Ascended Masters, we got the gray aliens, we got all the things that Hollywood's portraying, we've got the star children. I mean, man, I mean, you know... It's like, you know, Baskin-Robbins, 53 flavors of, of different supposed saviors. Satan is going to meet you at your need. He's going to have something for everybody. That's the whole point of this. It's not just going to be one deception. It's going to be deceptions at almost every single level you can imagine. And the church is not being equipped and prepared to deal with what's coming. They're not going to have an answer. And they're going to be a laughing stock. The church is going to be looked at, for the most part, most likely, as an absolute laughing stock. You know the ones that are going to be vindicated when it gets really bad, when all this deception really starts to go down? And for, and for a full description of the deception that's coming, you're going to have to listen to my other teachings. I can't describe it all right here. It's, it's, right now I've got about 148 teachings up there, and I've talked a lot about this deception that's coming. But the church is going to be looked at when all this starts to go down as an absolute laughing stock for the most part. Because they're absolutely ill-equipped to deal with any of this. The pastors haven't prepared their congregations. Because most of them are hirelings that have no true love for the flock. They're, they're hirelings. Remember, they're doing it for the money. They're being hired. They're wolves in sheep's clothing. 
I'm not saying everybody. I'm not saying every bastard's bad. I'm saying most. Okay? Yeah, uh, Lisa and Doug just let me know that last night at, at Lisa's work, um, there was a, several people around, evidently, that were mocking the modern-day church, but they were doing so through lumping the church into the tele-evangelistic field. It's a laughing stock to them. And it should be. I mean, my parents who are unsaved can look at that junk and know in a heartbeat that, you know, it's, it's a joke. And yet the, the supposed Christians are falling for it hook, line, and sinker. But the problem is, is that people will tend to lump not only the televangelism with the TBN and the money grubbers and the prosperity doctrine and all that other stuff, they'll also lump the Catholics in there. They do that more than anything. Well, you know, yeah, you, you Christians, why, if you're so Christian, why did you kill all those people during the Spanish Inquisition? That's a big one I've, I've heard time and time again. So, true, born-again, Bible-believing Christians, and I will not even put a denominational label on it, get lumped in with all that. Again, that's all by Satan's design. He wants us to be lumped in with the apostates. So that we look no different. And then when we try to defend ourselves, they can point to all these other things that we might have had nothing to do with. It's all by design. Remember, Satan's very good at what he does. And again, our primary battle is not fought with flesh and blood. It's fought on our knees in prayer. Remember, we battle not against flesh and blood, but against princes, principalities, rulers of wickedness in high places. These types of things, Ephesians 6. That's why we need to put on the full armor of God. And these types of things. So... Um, the church, for the most part, are, are things that are considered of the church, for the most part right now, by many people, are laughing stocks anyway. It's only going to get worse. The people that are going to actually be vindicated when this deception really, really starts to go down, and it hasn't even really, trust me, there's many, many things that are going to happen here in the near future that are going to vindicate the New Age movement, witchcraft, a lot of these other false religions, and it's going to make us... As Christians, particularly if we're, we're ill-equipped to handle this, it's going to make us either... It's going to cause many to fall away from the faith. Many, we're going to find that, although they call themselves Christians, these were seeds that were actually in stony ground. When hard times came and these types of things, they were, they were choked out very quickly. Okay? We're going to actually find what seeds were on good ground that bared 30, 60, 100 fold. Okay? These other types of seeds, remember there's four types of ground that, that the seed can fall upon? We're going to find out quickly, or, or, or in the very near future, who actually is Christians and who's not. Remember, everything that can be shaken will be shaken. So that's coming. And actually, to be quite honest with you, I'm, I'm in some parts of me, is relieved that it is coming. Because this whole playing church thing, I really believe, is an absolute abomination to God. And he's going to prove us. So we're going to, our, our faith is going to be tried. It's going to be tested. Okay, to see what matter of faith it actually is. Are we building our foundation, you know, with, with gold, silver, precious stones, or is it wood, hay, or stubble? These types of things. So, if we go further here, let's see here. Okay, so Tolkien actually developed new languages. One of them was called Elfish. This is where the Keebler Elf thing came into play. No, just kidding. Sorry. Teasing. He went on to say that the entire story of the Lord of the Rings came to him as a result of the new language that he invented. 
Now, he invented this new language called elfish. Now, elves are demonic creatures, okay? It's not these innocent little Keebler elves that make crackers in some wood, in some tree somewhere, okay? Whenever you see things like elves, or gnomes, or trolls, or it's all demonic. Fairies, every bit of that is evil. These are demonic type entities that manifest in different ways. Now, I'm not saying that we go around and we, we see them, or whatever. People that are highly evolved in the occult, and have, and have gotten to the level in witchcraft, where they have what they call their third eye opened, can see into the spirit world. It's not something I would ever, ever advise anyone. Because in order to get to that point, you would have to be deeply immersed in witchcraft, or be involved in generational witchcraft, where you maybe have this intrinsic ability. You were born with it. But it's demonic. It's called a generational curse. Okay? The sins of the forefathers are carried to the third and fourth generation. This is what we're talking about here. So, this by this language that Tolkien developed, that's how he got, he went on to say that the entire story of the Lord of the Rings came to him as a result of this new language that he invented. That right there shows you how demonic this Lord of the Rings trilogy is. Because if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Psalm 11, verse 3. Well, I would say that's a pretty bad foundation for any story. You, you, you absolutely got the whole story because of some new language that you developed called Elvish? Elfish? He was a professor at Oxford University as well, and was... Um, as all of this was happening, and was the story... And as the story of the elves, the wizards, the trolls, and the hobbits pours, poured into his mind. Okay, now, another thing that we can say about this, when he says the entire story of the Lord of the Rings came to him as a result of this new language, what does that tell me also? That tells me that the whole story was most likely channeled to him and through him, through demonic spirits, as a result of this demonic language that he had developed or been told. Many times, people that write these types of stories, they channel these stories, and then they go into this trance-like state where they go into what they call automatic writing, where they're, where they're basically, like, on autopilot, and they have a pen in their hand, and there's, there's words coming out on the paper, but they're not the ones in, con in control. Well, that's, a, that's basically being demon-possessed where you get to a point where you're just writing out... I mean, many, many rock songs were, were made the same way with Led Zeppelin and a lot of these groups. The, the words just pour out on paper. And they don't even know where they're coming from. All they know is that the song's coming out or the story's coming out. It's not of God. None of it's glorifying God. So if it's not of God, you know, we know it's evil. So then we go further. Um... While it became a manuscript, meaning the Lord of the Rings, under his pen, he said, quote, that my work has escaped from my control. I have produced a monster. End of quote. That's what he said about the Lord of the Rings trilogy that he was writing. Tolkien was a devout Catholic and also the master of the Middle Earth. He converted his colleague, C.S. Lewis, and spent much time with him at Oxford in the pubs and taverns. They would go there and get drunk, and essentially exchange stories with their other inkling buddies. They claimed to have what they call kindred spirits. Yes, they did have kindred spirits. You know, birds of a feather flock together. You ever heard that? Well, there's a lot of truth in that. I mean, and again, there's that saying that a man is known by the company that he keeps. What type of company was C.S. Lewis, who was supposedly one of the greatest Christian apologists of all time, what type of company was he keeping? Well, look at, look at one of the guys, Tolkien, his best buddy. 
who basically, you know, wrote his Lord of the Rings trilogy, it sounded like basically had it channeled through him as a result of this elvish language, elfish language that he developed. And he said that when my work has escaped from my control and I produced a monster. It doesn't sound like a really good scenario to me. Now there is much rank blasphemy in Tolkien's work, such as the death and the resurrection of the wizard Gandalf, who, fail, who falls into the pit and descends into hell, but comes back transformed and stronger than ever. Deceived Christians say that the good wizard is a type of Christ. Tolkien even translated the Lord's Prayer into elfish language. That's how blasphemous Tolkien was, the Lord's Prayer. And then he says, I can, I can most surely say that the Lord of the Rings trilogy comes from the pits of hell and is a clever instructional course in witchcraft disguised as fantasy and entertainment. Part 1 was released in movie form on December 19, 2001, shortly after the, the, the Twin Towers of the World Trade Center came down. The first part was called The Fellowship of the Ring. Part 2 was called The Two Towers and was released December 18, 2002, which was essentially about a year later. Part 3 was named The Return of the King, and it was released December 17, uh, 2003. So they were all essentially one year apart minus one day. I'm sure there's some occult significance in that as well. Uh, and at the time, they were breaking all records for ticket sales. All three movies were released at the time of the witchcraft Sabbat of Yule, okay, which is closely tied in with Xmas, or what we know as Christmas. And I've done a whole teaching on that, and you can go up there, just key in uh, Xmas or Christmas, and you'll find it. Okay, so we talked a little bit about uh, Tolkien. Now let's talk about his good buddy, who we talked about last week, C.S. Lewis. This is another uh, excerpt from the Last Trumpet newsletter, uh, again with Pastor Meyer, and it's entitled, The Narnia Chronicles, A Witch's Brew. On December 5th, 2005, a major Disney, Disney movie based on the first book of the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis opened in, in theaters across the country. Now remember, last week I was actually, I, I said a lot of what I said last week, so you could see the type of person C.S. Lewis actually was. And what is his legacy? What is the fruit? Remember, a tree is known by its fruit. Okay, what is the fruit of C.S. Lewis and Tolkien? As, as we can see, I, I hope it's obvious that it's rotten and that it's satanic. Well, now we have his legacy coming into to, um, Walt Disney, who is also a very satanic organization. I have a whole, I'm going to have to do a whole study on Walt Disney eventually. Uh, and I will, but I have an attachment, and if, if you want me to forward that to you, just email me. My email address is on the site, and I'll, I'll forward it to you. Um, the movie was such a hit that it took nearly 24 million? 24 million dollars on opening day. Wow, that's a lot of money. This is all referenced to, you know, when I'm reading you here. Uh, all of the reasons for its success is because Christian churches of all, quote Christian churches, of all denominations, filled the theaters in droves as they arrived by the busload to view the movie based on the first chronicle of Narnia. So, who, what was the reason that Hollywood took in 24 million. What was the, one of the primary reasons? Because, so, quote, Christians by the busload filled the theaters the first day to take in the, this, this movie of the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. That's how deceived and deluded the pseudo-Christian masses are. 
And because they believe their pastor, who is leading them astray, who has no true love for the sheep, because they're trusting in a man, and the Bible says, Thus saith the Lord, Cursed be the man that trusteth in man, and that maketh flesh his arm, and whose heart departeth from the Lord. Jeremiah 17.5 Because they're putting all their trust in some man who's leading them astray. You know, here they are at these movie theaters, in mass droves. The movie was based on the first chronicles of Narnia, known as The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Many Christian pastors and church leaders are declaring that this movie is Christian, and contains Christian themes, and has a type of Christ in it. Many churches are also using The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe as Sunday school material, for teaching the young people in their congregations. In short, the story is about a little girl named Lucy, who hides in a wardrobe while playing a game. As she looks into the mirror of the wardrobe, she enters in through the mirror into a strange new land called Narnia. Now, in the occult, mirrors are always used, usually in a very, very, very occult way. It is one of the quickest ways that you can essentially summon a demon. I've, I've seen these things where they look in the mirrors in the, in, at night and they, they look at their own reflection. It's, it's, it's a very demonic thing to do. Okay, So it doesn't surprise me that much of this movie revolves around mirrors. Um, so this little girl named Lucy looks into a mirror in a strange new land and she sees called Narnia. She, soon she's having tea with a fawn. Now this fawn is, na is, is the one that I talked about last week that looks exactly like um, the god of sexual immorality, Pan. Which is where we get the word pandemonium, pandemic, panic. Okay? She's having tea with a fawn, which is a mythological creature that has the body of a man, but the horns and legs and the tail of a goat. Again, like the Bible talks, or, or, or like in, in occult circles where you have what they call the goat of Mendez, which is represented in the um, upside down pentagram. Uh, Chick Track has a whole track on that. Okay? But it's, it's um, one of the gods of Freemasonry as well. So. There's also talking animals and other creatures in the seven chronicles of Narnia, such as Bacchus, the god of wine and debauchery. So they've got the god Bacchus. This is, this is how evil can you get? And then another one, uh, the Meadians, which were wild and frenzied, sexually immoral women, and a witch who also casts a spell to cause a perpetual winter, and a lion named Aslan. When Aslan roars and shows his teeth, the winter immediately turns to spring, and Aslan also faces the rising sun in the east as he shakes his mane, and the bright rays of the light are sent forth from him. Now, Aslan is the one that's presented as the type of Christ. Okay. The controversy in the movie is between the lion and the witch. Church leaders have become so caught up in this movie that in some cases they have turned their sanctuaries into the land of Narnia. This is true. This is actually going on here. One example is in the Bel Air United Methodist Church in Houston, Texas. Those who arrive for Sunday church must walk through a wardrobe and, and brush past coats to emerge into Narnia. Can you believe this? So they've got this big wardrobe coat rack set up, like the little girl walks through in the, in the Chronicles of Narnia, and once you go through the coats, they're real coats, once you go through the wardrobe, you come into the land of Narnia, which is evidently the church sanctuary. How blasphemous can you get?
um, this is where Pastor Valerie Hudson gives them the Narnia sermon. So we got a good Christian, God-called woman preacher, even though the Bible says the preacher, or the bishop, or the spiritual overseer, or the deacon, or the pastor, must be the husband of one wife, not the wife of one husband. And I've done whole sermons on this too. The biblical roles of women, and these types of things. You can look that up. But this... This pastor, Valerie Hudson, gives them the Narnia sermon. Pastor Robert Creech of the University of Baptist Church in Houston is basing all of his December sermons on the Narnia themes. We also know that Dr. James Dobson, a focus on the family organization, is promoting these works of C.S. Lewis for a suggested donation. I bet. <laughs> the witches know that if they present witchcraft as having two sides, they can claim to be on the good side. Fighting the bad side and thus pull people into the craft. Or at least be influenced positively by it. You know, I, I shouldn't say all the churches are going to be laughing stocks because I believe it's gotten so bad in a lot of the churches, particularly in the Pentecostal areas, especially where they're really into dominionism, that, or preterism for that matter where they're believing there's really not going to be any tribulation. Either we've already went through it or it's not going to happen, or we're going to be the army of God that ushers in things. I believe that those types of churches, the whole army of God, Joe's army thing, they're going to really fall for this hook, line, and sinker. Because they're not going to have to explain away anything. Because when the Antichrist makes his emergence, they're going to point to him as Jesus Christ. They're going to say, hey, yeah, listen, Jesus Christ, we, we told you he was coming back. And these types of things. And you know what? It's good fighting evil. And we're on the side of good. And we're on the side of, of, of you know, I'm telling you, this is part of the deception that's going to go down. So some of the churches aren't going to be laughing stocks because they're actually going to be so much a part of it. And so much confirming it. That's how bad things are right now in America, in the state of the church. And I'm sure elsewhere. But America influences the rest of the world. America is the one that sent the absolute total bulk of majority of missionaries out. And if those missionaries are being corrupted, and they're being sent out, they're going to corrupt other people. So there's, there's, a, there's a, I mean, the deception is just unbelievable. This is why you have to do your own homework. This is why you need to study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. 2 Timothy 2.15 Be like those in Berea, which were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Why? Because they sought the things out in the word of God to see if they be so. Okay, The word of God is our standard. This is why we need to have a King James Bible. And if you, if you doubt that, email me. I'll get you the, the, uh, my attachment on the King James Bible. And we need to stick to the Word of God. Because if you're sticking with a man or some denomination, or so, you're going to get led astray. So if we go further here, uh, let's see here. The witches know that if they can present witchcraft as having two sides, they can claim to be on the good side, fighting the bad side, and thus pull people into the craft. Or at least be influenced positively by it. That is the mistake that, quote, Christians make, and it's a big mistake. They pick out the hero in a witch's fable and make a type of Christ out of him. But it is all 
really witchcraft and an abomination of the first magnitude. Clive Staples Lewis, C.S. Lewis, was born in Belfast, Northern Ireland, and was not a Christian. His so-called Christian books can be found in Christian bookstores and occult bookstores as well. Did you know that? Sure. You could get you could get C.S. Lewis's books and Tolkien's books if you go um, into either... I don't know about Tolkien so much, but I definitely know C.S. Lewis. You could get them at both occult bookstores and Christian. Wasn't there a problem with that? I mean, do you, do you think that occult bookstores are selling a lot of King James Bibles? Yeah, I'm sure that's their hottest seller, like hotcakes, right? No, they're not. But C.S. Lewis, you can actually find his books at both places. The works of C.S. Lewis are required reading for neophyte witches. Did you hear what I just said? They're required reading! And yet he's the greatest Christian apologist ever known? But yet they're required reading for neophyte witches? You can find them at occult bookstores? They're making occult movies out of his stuff? We talked about them last week. That's pretty, uh, pretty sobering stuff here. Because these books firmly root the concepts and the mindsets of witchcraft in the beginner or the neophyte members of the craft. Remember what I said last week also. Um, J.K. Rowling's the uh, lady that made all the Harry Potter series, guess who her number one inspiration was for her books? C.S. Lewis. She flat out says it. C.S. Lewis. Not even Tolkien. So again, look at his legacy. Look at the fruit. The writings of C.S. Lewis are so clearly antichrist that only spiritual blindness could prevent one from seeing it. Let us now examine it, some of the words of, of Lewis from his so-called Christian books. In the C.S. Lewis book, The World's Last Night, and other essays on page 98-99, C.S. Lewis says, I assuredly, he says, quote, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass till all these things take place. And C.S. Lewis goes on to say, Certainly, this is the most embarrassing verse in the Bible. The one exhibition of air... And the one confession of, of ignorance grew side by side. That they, that they stood thus in the mouth of Jesus himself, and were not merely placed thus by the reporter, we surely need not doubt. The facts then are these, now this is C.S. Lewis talking, that Jesus professed himself in some sense ignorant, and within a moment showed that that really was so. End of quote. So he said that that's the most embarrassing verse in the Bible. And that Jesus Christ was ignorant and proved that it was so. He goes on to say, What rank blasphemy that this pseudo-Christian, who was actually a witch and an illuminist and a member of the coven known as the Thelmic Order of the Golden Dawn, how can he get away with calling the Lord Jesus Christ ignorant? Now, we're going to talk about what that last statement I just said. Remember, he said that C.S. Lewis was a member of the coven called the Thelmic Order of the Golden Dawn, also known as the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. That's a pretty bold statement. Well, let's go further. And let's talk about some of the people that C.S. Lewis hung out with. And Tolkien hung out with. They had a group called the Inklings. That would get together and supposedly, you know, exchange stories and these types of things. One of the men that was involved in the Inklings was a guy named Charles Williams. He lived from 1886 to 1945. There's a whole book written about this called uh, The Inklings. 
and um, it's got a really long title, but it's by a guy named Humphrey Carpenter. And just some notes on what we're going to be talking about next uh, as a preview. C.S. Lewis called Charles Williams a man whose mind was steeped in the occult. Uh, man, C.S. Lewis called Charles Charles Williams who was a man whose mind was steeped in the occult rituals and demonic forces, his dearest friend. Okay, that was C.S. Lewis's best buddy. Okay? This was kind of after Tolkien. This close friendship made an impact on C.S. Lewis and his writings, especially on the fantasies in his writings such as That Hideous Strength, which is one of C.S. Lewis's books. Um... Our goal is to equip you to recognize today's popular forms of spiritual counterfeits so that you won't be deceived by the flood of occult suggestions flowing into many churches today. But remember, the best defense against deception is the love of God's word. And I agree. That what I said before about the love of God's word is the best deception. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. But remember, what, what did Jesus say? If you continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Well, God's word is truth. So, you have to always temper everything that you're doing, if you're going to glean stuff from this, you have to temper this with reading the word of God. Because that will keep you in truth. Those who know his truth and put on his armor will share in his victory. Now, this is from an article by Alan Jacobs, and it's entitled, From the Narnian. The Life and the Imagination of C.S. Lewis. Perhaps the most interesting person among the Inklings was a man of temporary, was, was one of the temporary members of the party, known as Charles Williams, an odd, charismatic man. He wrote plays, poems, short and long stories based on the Arthurian legends, like the legends of Arthur and the Holy Grail. Evil stuff here, okay? Works of literary criticism and theological treaties. But Williams was chiefly known for his novels. He was often often referred to as supernatural thrillers. They include, in the novels, they include Black Masses, Magical Tarot Cards, The Crown of Solomon, and Antichrist, and Dead People Who Can Speak with the Living. That's called necromancy. So that's what some of his stuff was, was based on. This was C.S. Lewis's best friend after Tolkien. A reader of Williams' biography is likely to come to the conclusion that he was rather creepy. His romantic theology, which understands erotic love as a form of the love of God. That was one of his main tenets, too. That tenet that I just said. He seems to have had the same sadomasochistic tendencies as the young C.S. Lewis. Williams' fascination with the occult exceeded what most Christians think today as appropriate bounds. I would say that everything we've talked about is inappropriate. Yet, Few who knew him saw him in this light. Lewis adored him, finding him chivalrous, generous, even selfless, as well as being a major thinker and a brilliant, though often obscure, writer. I begin to suspect that we are living in the age of Williams. That's what C.S. Lewis said. The age of Williams? Charles Williams, this occultist? C.S. Lewis said, I begin to suspect that we are living in the, quote, the age of Williams, he once wrote in a letter to his friend. Our friendship with you will be our, our only passport to fame. End of quote. Charles Williams simply made an exceptionally powerful impression on almost all who knew him. Though in more variable ways, Lewis and Williams met by exchanging fan letters. In 1936, 
Lewis, C.S. Lewis, had read William's novel, The, the Place of the Lion, and was so taken by it, he said for the first time in his life, C.S. Lewis wrote a fan letter to Charles Williams, to another author. It's the first time in life he's ever done He never even did this with Tolkien. Almost immediately he received a reply from Williams explaining that he had just about that he was about ready to write a similar letter to C.S. Lewis after reading the proofs in C.S. Lewis's The Allegory of Love. So these guys were just smitten with one another right from the get-go. Williams would remain in Oxford. Isn't it kind of funny this all kind of ties in with Oxford University? All these guys are from Oxford and they all kind of hung out together. You know, isn't it kind of weird that, that B.F. Uh, Westcott, Westcott and Hort, who, who gave us the revised version of 1881, which is where all the other false Bible versions spawned from, that they hung out with these same types of people, with Madame Blavatsky and Charles Darwin. All of these people were, were living around the same time, and so much evil spawns from that same time frame, and these people that actually spent time together. Williams would remain in Oxford, continuing to work for the press, but also giving occasional lectures series for the university, and of course meeting with the Inklings. Until his sudden and, expect, and unexpected death in 1945, C.S. Lewis was devastated by the loss. More than any of the other Inklings, Williams had effectively displaced Tolkien from his place in C.S. Lewis's life. Indeed, he called Williams in a letter written soon after the man's death, My dearest friend. End of quote. Here's another article from, entitled Excerpts from the Inklings, C.S. Lewis, J.R. Tolkien, Charles Williams and Their Friends by Humphrey Carpenter. This is from pages 80 through 84. This book was written in 1979. By the time that Charles Williams, in his late 20s, by the time that he, Charles Williams, was in his late 20s, he was making some study of the beliefs and practices of the semi-magical branch of Christianity known as Rosicrucianism. Okay, this is this Charles Williams guy, okay, that, you know, was the dearest friend of C.S. Lewis. Rosicrucianism is an occult system using a blend of Egyptian and Christian symbology. It's essentially the occult. Okay, just a different flavor. During this period... Williams read books by the Rosicrucian writer A.E. White. And then he entered into correspondence with, with Waite, I'm sorry, A.E. Waite. And at Waite's invitation was initiated in 1917 into an organization called the Order of the Golden Dawn. Or the Thelmic Order of the Golden Dawn, or the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, whatever you want to call it. Among its first initiates was a coroner who allegedly performed necromantic rites. Necromantic means communication with the dead. Okay, it, it, this was a coroner that was one of the first members of, the, of this member of the Golden Dawn. While another member uh, was the was the early while another early member was the black magician Aleister Crowley. Okay, now. Do you understand what type of evil people we're dealing with here? And this is what Charles Williams was initiated into. This is who, this is who uh, David Meyer and many other people say that both Tolkien and C.S. Lewis were, were closet members of the, of the Order of the Golden Dawn. Now, I can't prove that unequivocally with this particular teaching. But there's many that say that they were closet members. Okay? 
Now, if they weren't closet members, let's give them that. Okay, let's say, well, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Look at the people who they hung out with in the Inklings. Two of the Inklings that they hung out with were absolute, total, avowed members of the Order of the Golden Dawn. Who else was a member of the Golden Dawn? Well, this weight guy, who was about as big of a devil as you could be. We had a coroner who performed necromantic rites, which is where we communicate with the dead. We have Aleister Crowley, who is reputed to be the most evil man of the last hundred years. He called himself the Great Beast. He bragged about how he would, he would um, sexually molest little boys and then kill them. He performed witchcraft at, at the absolute highest level that had ever been known up to that time, publicly. This man was absolutely, totally evil to the core. And he was, a, he was one of the first members, Aleister Crowley. He was the self-styled great beast. I've talked a lot about him in, in other lectures. But the Order of the Golden Dawn also included persons of less outlandish ways, such as W.B. Yeats, who was another inkling. Well, these guys all got together, didn't they? All the inklings got together. Yeats, Charles Williams, Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, and they got together, and they got drunk, and they compared notes. Charles Williams was one of them, and that was C.S. Lewis's best friend, his dearest friend. And it said that he influenced his writings more than, you know, we'll ever know. So did Tolkien. I mean, are you able to do the math here on this? I, I, I think that everybody is. This is pretty obvious what's going on here. There was also other people, one or two other clergy with a taste for the mystical, and A.E. Wade himself. Now, the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. The influences of the Golden Dawn concepts and work include Freemasonry. So this is some of the things that have influenced this uh, Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. The Freemasons, Theosophy, which is the belief of, of mystical insight into the nature and of the God and the soul. This is what Madame H.P. Blavatsky started, the Theosophy, which is essentially like Luciferianism. Okay? Uh, that heavily influenced the Golden Dawn. Enochian magic also influenced it, which is an elaborate system of ceremonial magic. Very, very, very powerful stuff. Enochian magic. Okay, this is another major tenet of the Golden Dawn. Um, and medieval grimoires, which, which is a manual of black magic for invoking spirits and demons. Hey, sounds like a great you know, Christian organization to me. Where do I sign up? And then it says, while it existed, this member of the, Go the, the Golden Dawn, this Order of the Golden Dawn, while it existed, it was the focal point of the development and redevelopment of the magical thinking in Europe. Here's another thing. This, this is from uh, the Hermetic Imagination, the effect of the Golden Dawn on fantasy literature. Because isn't that what we're talking about today here? Isn't that what C.S. Lewis and Tolkien wrote? And all these other good buddies they had, they all wrote fantasy literature. Well, that was the particular genre that Satan so chose to use in order to indoctrinate millions and millions and millions, and the count keeps growing every day, into the occult, the fantasy world. Who influenced that fantasy world genre more than anybody? Who influenced it more than C.S. Lewis and Tolkien in the last hundred years? Any, is there any two bigger names? I don't think so. 
C.S. Lewis and Tolkien are going to be responsible for the blood of untold millions of people on their hands, most likely. As far as sending people into the occult and getting them hooked into that system so ultimately they go to hell. I wouldn't want to be in their shoes. I'm not saying I'm perfect, but I sure wouldn't want to be in their shoes. And they weren't saved, obviously. The Hermetic Imagination, the Effects of the Golden Dawn of Fantasy Literature. At a Tolkien Centennial Conference in 1992, Charles Williams stands out because of both of his overtly theological over and because of his close connection with C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien. They said it right there. This was at a Tolkien fantasy, uh, a Tolkien Centennial Conference in 1992. There's no, there's no mystery about any of this. Now, as a neo, this is a quote from one of these guys, as a neophyte aspiring to be initiated into the Golden Dawn, he would apparently have to have to declare, quote, my soul seeking for the light of occult knowledge. This is what they do, uh, similar to what they do in the Freemasons. He would also take an oath to keep his, the right secret and on penalty of a hostile current which would be set against him if he broke the faith. Again, this is very much indicative of what the oaths that bind you in the Freemasons. You take these blood oaths in the Freemasons which are forbidden by God in the Bible. Remember, above all, swear not, these types of things. They take these blood oaths to uphold the secrets of their given occult order or secret societies typically upon penalty of death. Um, this, these oaths based as seem they have to, to have been on Waite's enthusiasm for the Freemasonry vaguely, uh, and also vaguely Christian mysticism and Ros Rosicrucianism, uh, which is a system of occult beliefs which combines the symbolism of Christian Christianity and the terminology of what they call alchemy, which is a demonic counterfeit of Christianity, yet it seems to be influencing the church through the popularity of mysticism, spiritual experience, and the postmodern disinterest in God's unchanging word. I'm going to go ahead and stop there, and we'll go to part two next.